Hello and welcome to Rise Up with me, Jen Kavanagh. I am a holistic therapist and empowerment coach and my purpose here is to guide you home to yourself and help you create and live a life of your dreams. This podcast will explore topics to help you on your own healing journey, such as body and soul nourishment, manifestation, masculine and feminine energies, inner child healing, embodiment, sensuality, sexuality, and all of this ultimately focusing on the cultivation of self-love, self-worth, and true embodiment of your authentic soul. This will then allow you to create and live a life that you really love. So join me and my incredible guest speakers, reclaim your divine feminine power and rise up. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Rise Up with Jen Kavna podcast. This week I have somebody amazing on with me and I'm so excited for her to share all of her wisdom and knowledge because She has made such a huge difference to my world and I just want you to experience the magic as well. So I have the amazing Yael Margalit on with me and she is just going to share some of her amazing wisdom and magic with us today. So I first met you like I was a year ago now, like it was just over a year ago, I think it was like January it feels like a lot longer but I was having extreme um issues with my back and that's been like an ongoing thing for many many years um as a result of the autoimmune conditions that I've had so I went in hoping that somebody might be able to help me and what I got as a result of it was like the best help that I've ever had in all of the years of traveling around the world seeing various specialists in hospitals like you were the one that actually like taught me about my body and actually like you knew more about the condition than any specialist actually ever has um because I don't think I've ever really spoken about it much on here but the condition that I have is probably quite rare really uh, especially for women and um it's whilst you there is a a genetic component to it the actual condition itself reactive arthritis um is very rare I've never actually met anybody else who has it and um it's really affected uh, my spine probably the most out of any part of my body my the rest of my body is recovered quite well from it but my lower back in particular is quite bad and at the point when I went in to see you last year I was in like a really bad state and I always say there's an energetic like an energetic component to this as well and it was definitely a lot of stuff that I was going through at the time but um you work with um a few different a few different therapies so there's like physical therapy um you're training as an osteopath so coming into your last year of that now um and also craniosacral therapy which I never tried before and I think that this is magic uh helps me digest guys I go in and lay on the table in the room and my stomach is like (laughs) obviously clearly needs it um but yeah I'm just so excited for you particularly to hear her wisdom around uh the female reproductive system because I've learned so much on this as well since I've started working with you and as we record this right now it's 11 11 so the angels are with us they're working with us and um we're just gonna like dive deep into all of the things that we wish that you knew about the female body and all of the amazing things that it can do so I'm just gonna let 
Yael, say a little hello before I keep yabbering on for like 10 years. Hi, <laughs> welcome. Hi. Hi, Jen. So nice to be here. Yeah. I'm so excited to have you because I do feel like you're just a like mountain of knowledge on this, like everything from the actual physical structure of the body to the different things that go on like hormonally as well I've learned so much from you um so let's dive in first like what do you think is like one of the biggest things that women come into you with that should just be known like it should just be a given that's such a massive question (laughs) (laughs) yeah don't throw in at the deep end like (laughs) um like I, I, I mean, like women or anybody really that comes into me, I just like, I think the main thing that I want to impart in my work is that they're whole, you know, you're not broken. Like, I feel mm. like a lot of people come in uh, with this uh, sense of um, they're out or they're, um, they're out of alignment or, you know, something has gone or no on and just purely on a physical level and just that somehow they're they're broken and for the most part I just feel like if there it could be one thing that I can get people to leave with from the clinic is that they're you know whole and well and that Mm. their body is just so capable yeah yeah I think if people can can come into my clinic and then leave feeling like a superhero or at least, you know, stronger than, or stronger and easier in their body than when they initially came in, like be that through the conversations that we have or the physical work that we do, like that's what I'd like people to leave with. Um, And that's what I want people to know before that they come in, you know, that they're ultimately you're well, I mean, obviously they're coming into me because there's something amiss or something askew, mm. but like, yeah, just that, that thing that, you know, when, what really struck me when you came in was just that kind of like, I won't say like resignation, because I don't think you resign at all, but it's mm-hmm. just this thing of like, I have this thing, it's just going to be with me for the rest of my life. I'm not really sure what it is, um, but like, I've been dealing with it and I just, I just want this bit to be fixed kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so much of that, so much of that is just um, lack of education, mm. lack of understanding or knowing about your body. Yeah. And, and that like so much of that just starts with education, doesn't it? It starts mm-hmm. with like knowing body literacy. Um, yeah knowing what's going on with your body and I think that one of the things I'm constantly disappointed by in our healthcare system is the lack of communication between our healthcare practitioners and our patient and us as patients Mm. um yeah and to a certain extent I understand that but like a really big part of my job as well is informed consent Mm-hmm. um obviously because I'm touching and working with the body like um I think it was one person one patient before I remember working with and um I said 
I often like I need to see how the spine works and how the how the spine moves and uh, so therefore often I'll, I need to ask people to either take down their top or I'll bring their trousers or shorts down to the waistline or something like that and I remember saying to her when I was doing it like um can I just can I um bring up your top to the bra line um, or bring down your shorts. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was the shorts. Bring down your shorts to the waistline to see your hips. And I did it without first really checking in. Mm -hmm. And she called me out on it. And I think that was the biggest lesson that I ever learned was just like this this thing of uh, going in, having informed consent, letting somebody know what I'm about to do or where we're going to go and then mm. them agreeing to it or understanding it, agreeing to it and then proceeding with an action. And I feel like that was a real aha moment for me in so much of my practice and in so much of the way we learn mm. because she showed me there in that moment. It's like, wait a second, you have to, you have to make sure that I understand what you're doing first, mm. that I agree to what you're doing and then we can both go ahead and do it. Um, like it was, all of that happened in just a second, but it was such a massive learning for me in the way we are able to engage and connect with our bodies. Um, yeah. So that like, just that that thing of infor information, yeah. but like understanding the information that we're given from our healthcare practitioner, somehow absorbing it or taking it into our bodies and then being able to apply it either with somebody or by yourself yeah I think that's such an important thing to even like bring up and it's something I have actually funny enough I never think of it and yet I should with all of the different people that I've been in and out to see over the years because I always remember you saying that to me every time I went into you and I'm like I've been here loads of times she knows she can do it now but I always really appreciated it because it's not done in, in healthcare and like I go back to when I was younger um, I found a lump in my breast when I was 15 and when I went in to get it checked out in the hospital like bearing in mind you're a 15 year old girl like you are in the height of shame and embarrassment about your body anyway mm -hmm. and um, I went in to have the the biopsy done on it and then afterwards I was in with the specialist to kind of get the results and stuff the specialist himself was a man and the day that I went in as a 15 year old I was in the room by myself and he brought in four other male practitioners to observe whilst he examined my breast and didn't ask didn't see if it was okay and I was like holy sweet Jesus like you know and as time went on I and and even just thinking about it, I was only talking to somebody else recently about having to get like a smear test done or something and how I'm so like immune to being like looked at and everything now from all of the different things that I've had to have done over the years, be it like for the conditions that I have and um, being with gynecologists, especially when I was living in the UK, they often have, you know, trainee doctors in with the GPs. So they'll, uh, they will ask you first if it's okay to have them in, but I'm kind of like, well, they're not going to learn otherwise. So I'd feel bad saying no, but like that's examining the most private parts of your body or what we're taught to be shameful about, you know, those like are, our female parts, our genitalia, like um, with different things going on. And uh, and now I feel so numb and immune to it, but I actually don't think that's necessarily good either. Mm. You know, that's just a sort of like, oh, I'm just numb to it now. I'll just ignore the fact that I have to go and get this done and pretend that people aren't down there, mm. even though I'm not carrying that same shame around it. 
I also don't think the numbness is a good thing either. Yeah. yeah. I remember the last time I went to get a smear test done. Um, now my GP clinic at the time, they were really fantastic. And I, the nurses, I got on so well with the nurses, but I remember the first time I went to get it done, she uh, left this like little, and I think it's pretty much standard in every GP set or in every kind of smear test setting where they will like um, break off a little piece of like tissue paper or that the roll the roll of toilet roll or whatever and it'll be only like one or two bits of this tissue paper and then they'll like go okay now you just take off your tri- uh, everything from the waist down and you can pop that over your abdomen and I'll be back in in a second and I was just like for that moment I was like at first I remember three years ago when she did it I was like this is ridiculous she's like going to literally have her face in my vulva in like two minutes time and she's stepping out of the room and giving me this sheet of paper for modesty and then like you know the second the last year when I got it done again it was kind of like no it's okay I think I'd rather you stay in the room while I like you know prepare myself here so we can it's almost like I mean it, it like it's such an intimate act do you know what I mean and I think that there's this thing of like pretending to maintain this modesty so as to not so as to not intrude on on a barrier or something like that and while I understand it and I I get it to a certain extent maybe some people do prefer the person to step out while they undress and then they put the little sheet over them but from there on in I just find the whole process so unbelievably intimate Mm -hmm. that I want to engage as much as possible with the other person at my feet as you know so that we can have this dialogue about what's going on what she's going to do she or he are going to do like when it's going to happen how best I can be comfortable around this Mm -hmm. um you know what I would like in the situation and I think I just think that that's really really important I think um in any kind of healthcare setting that it's patient led, mm-hmm. you know, like just checking in, like, yeah. may I, can I, is it okay if I, how are you doing? Like, yeah. and it, like keeping those, sen- keeping those questions open-ended, you know, um, see, there isn't time for that. I would say it's the, it's the time yeah. of the open-endedness. Like we're in private practice, we're probably a little bit luckier where we might have a little bit of extra time to give to people. But generally we're in this like rush state whenever there's, you know, the GPs. I mean, I, I think that was one of my favorite things when I was living in the UK is you could book a longer session with the GP <laughs> if you needed one. And that was available to you because obviously sometimes you did need to talk about something and the usual five minutes with the smackdown of, um, you know, prescription at the end of it wasn't going to cut it. So um, I definitely did enjoy the NHS approach a little bit more than the HSE here in Ireland. Um, But that being said, I mean, obviously we're generalizing here as well, but that's I've been in and out of the medical system for so long. I can definitely speak from experience on it. And I'm sure that you can from listening to a lot of patients that come to you as well yeah and I think that that's what's so precious about some of the sessions that I have with people and like you know yourself included it's like we actually had so much time to talk about Mm -hmm. what was going on like the full 50 minutes whatever was needed within that session like obviously um you know it's directed as a hands-on treatment but it's a yeah there's there's time to 
continually check in and yeah. to hear what's going on there's um, such an emotional aspect to learning this stuff though as well I mean like how long was I in and out of the different people before I like like it was last year so that's like you know 13 14 years of being in and out of people and them just dismissing me and then I go to you and I finally get help and there's such a huge emotional aspect to that as well so when people you know have tried all of the medical route and that's when they they usually start turning to something that's a bit more holistic based Mm. um or sometimes they'll do it alongside of it but it's usually kind of a last resort thing it's like well who can help me now and there is such an emotional aspect to that so I, I do think it's like so important um especially when we're talking about female health problems yeah I mean like it's one of the reasons why I take such a comprehensive case history like that's part of our training and I think that's really key to osteopathy as well is just like we it's the case history taking just tells you so much um I remember uh, BC before COVID, um, <laughs> my one of my supervisors used to say, "You can tell so much from per- from what, from a person in the waiting room, shaking their hand and then walking down to the treatment space." Now, mm-hmm. obviously, you can't. Well, most people don't shake hands anymore, but like for me, that you know that information that the person will give me, the time to let them tell that story, it's key. And you can tell so much from, yeah, where, where everything lies. And like, I remember one woman coming into me before and I was just like, she gave me her case history and I was sitting there listening to it. And I'm like, this is classic PMDD. Mm-hmm. No, a woman in her thirties having this, um, quite acute um quite acute um reproductive or menstrual I won't say condition but I guess it is a condition in a way and just for years suffering through this thing and just feeling like I'm a hormonal wench um and I'm really delicate and you know that I have to be so careful with myself and other people around me whereas actually like people just missed out on it because they didn't have time to listen to her. Mm-hmm. They didn't have, you know, it's, and I think that if you know, or if you're <clears throat> capable enough in your diagnostic skills that you'd be able to spot these things straight away. I think that's, that's like, I remember my, um, some of my lecturers used to say that, like it's, they would, they would often comment on like, you will see when something is wrong, it will stand out to you like a sore thumb when you have seen everything else that is right and I could never when I was like in my earlier years of studying I was just like I'm never going to remember all of this how am I ever going to remember that this means this and that means that and this is associated with this and then actually when you're in practice and you're going through like I ask every person with a uterus that comes into my clinic do you have a period for starters I don't assume that they do have a period Mm -hmm. because sometimes they don't they might have had a hysterectomy early on in their Mm -hmm. years or they might be going through early menopause like again no assumptions made Mm -hmm. but um it is that thing of do you have a period and tell me about it it's leaving those open-ended questions and some people are like yeah it's regular um 
it arrives every 28 to 30 days. It's fine. And that's absolutely like on par with what is fine for them. And then there are other people who are like, my period's an absolute nightmare. And you're like, oh, and you know, you're associating this with lower back pain or you're associating or you're, my, my brain automatically goes to, okay, well, what else is in the case history that could then be connected back to that potentially not always obviously I don't want mm-hmm. to um try and fit jigsaw pieces in together that don't actually fit but it's also just yeah just looking at the picture holistically it's not about um it's not just one thing that makes um a diagnosis it's the picture as a whole it's the yeah. jigsaw piece as a whole it's whole body health basically and and we have to work and put them back together like it's the same in nutritional therapy it's one of the biggest parts of it is you take your case study and you take it like you know seriously you could you really have to like start joining up the dots to where they do actually meet um and it allows you then to see what is going on with that person and like I think it's such a shame because it's it's an area that women I feel are still quite sensitive to openly talk about you know there's an embarrassment around even saying the word period um I I use the word bleed now actually thanks to you I say that quite a lot um, I do I love that word yeah yeah when I'm you said to me I was like that resonates it really <laughs> resonates you know um I love it and um I, I've noticed really I've like I've done this thing now when I'm around men and I refuse to like not say the word period or bleed I'm like no we've got to get comfortable with this you know we can't keep just shying away from it and hope it's gonna go away everyone needs to start getting comfortable with talking about their period their bleed whatever way you want to say it but it's not something that we should be shameful of anymore I know we had the discussion there about um the advert that was like banned from the tv last year and everything as well where they were like talking about tampons and I mean are we still at that stage you know like Mm -hmm. we've got to move past this because how else are women going to start reclaiming health over their bodies like especially in Ireland this element of shame just needs to go yeah yeah I mean again it comes back down to education like Mm -hmm. I don't know about your uh, sex education but mine was not particularly comprehensive um <laughs> yeah um in fact I like I think we had a day of it maybe and it was very much it was very much um PIV like penis and vagina and the consequences therein of that education I remember I remember my first exposure to the concept of a period or a bleed was like maybe when I was in fifth class and I think one of the girls in my class had started bleeding at that time and the teacher had ushered her out to the toilet you know and then she came back in and then just you know kind of started announcing that you know that someday we will all have a bleed or a period and that it's totally normal And I think that there was a full stop after it. I don't really recall much after that in terms Mm -hmm. of my education. And, um, you know, it wasn't a huge topic in our home. My mom still kind of laughs at me at like uh, how kind of liberal I am in talking about (laughs) this stuff. Like I bought um, I bought uh, Muddy Body period underwear 
recently they're great I'm not like I'm not a I don't have any stock in these things but um I am an advocate for period underwear I think they're amazing and I bought a pair for my sister to try out as well and we were just literally over the kitchen table my partner was there her husband was there my mom was there and I was like asking my sister it's like oh did you get the period pants I sent you and she's like she's like yeah I haven't tried them yet yada yada yeah and I was like they're amazing it's like a hug for your vulva during your period it's so good (laughs) (laughs) and my mom was just sitting there rolling her eyes going who have I where did she come from kind of thing (laughs) this is what we're talking about at the dinner table now like I love it I love it yeah so yeah yeah, but definitely getting more comfortable with those conversations it's I mean it's it's something there's something in it Jen that like keeps me coming back to like a sense of equality Mm. a recognition like we all exist because our mother had a period mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't deny that like why I don't oh I just find it really really difficult to continue to put that on the back burner of like actual recognition yeah there's mm-hmm. there's so much about that I mean like yeah yeah there's just just that recognition I think is really really important and being able to begin those conversations and as I think like you know I'm very comfortable around my family obviously with talking about that stuff maybe with people who are not so comfortable with talking about that um uh, talking about periods and bleeds and that whole cycle like I would definitely tone it down and Mm -hmm. be respectful of where they're at too because I think that that's appropriate communication we can't be like you know excuse the um imagery but like bleeding all over the place and Mm -hmm. just expect people to be oh get on board with our sense of okayness with it um it takes time and it takes education and honestly I think that that education obviously begins from home but it also is a responsibility of our schooling and our health system to mm-hmm. promote the promote what's healthy and to promote what's quote-unquote normal um because from there we can care for what is abnormal or dysfunctional mm-hmm. recognize it and care for it like they're just yeah why 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 people with uteruses still suffer to the extent that they do is in my view like very much because of that shame and the shame is there because we're not educated appropriately to care for it Mm -hmm. also I think it's never the first thing that's looked at I mean I've got friends who have spent years you know with so many different um symptoms and they've been so uncomfortable in such a state of dis-ease you know mm-hmm. um and it's taken many many years before they've ever been referred to a gynecologist to have a look and then it turns out it's PCOS or it's endometriosis and it just has been left under you know uncovered basically 
and uh and it's really not okay it's not okay that it takes that long to discover these things and then if the person is left battling you know a stage three or stage four diagnosis um when it could have been caught and stage one had the proper things been looked at and we're just I feel like you know a lot of the times when um people do have different symptoms in relation to their period it's just dismissed as being regular like PMS or or PMT whatever people wanted to call it and it's never looked at you know in a more serious light like I know for myself um the first time I was referred to a gynecologist despite having ridiculously heavy periods from the age of 12 where I'd have to sleep sitting up in bed with like two pads on just to try and actually capture the blood Mm. and would be in the toilet probably about four or five times throughout the night to change that because it was so heavy and that went on for years um it was never looked at, never looked at, despite being mentioned to the GP. And the first time I was sent to a gynecologist was when I was in the UK. So I was like 24, 25 at that stage. And then the answer was putting me on three month cycles of the pill. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in the end, that didn't help anything. It took it took me coming off the pill, letting my body actually come back to some sense of normality. And I think the last the last kind of emblance of like looking at my at my cycle and really working with it was actually working with you because there was a few little bits and pieces there. I'd noticed some stuff going on hormonally. I remember talking to you about it as well, where we were talking about like the balance, the pH balance of the vagina Mm -hmm. and that being off at some stages throughout the cycle and how to kind of work with that naturally. And I've been doing that and I've never had another issue since. Um, but also with my back having that kind of last bit with my back as well and now you know I'm just after starting I started my bleed on Saturday and um, it's so light it's so free of the pain that I used to be in Um, it's so easy it's so easy Mm -hmm. and I can't quite believe that I'm here you know but that's taken years and doing my own work and doing the cycle thinking and doing the healing work and actually diving into it and Mm -hmm. I took that on myself but we need this education for younger women we need this education at like pre-teenage yeah absolutely like you've hit the nail on the head there like I think that that ultimately I mean certainly not in I don't foresee it in the next year or two like but down the line I'd love to be able to come into schools Mm. and to be able to share um it's not for me it's not sex education for me it's body literacy mm-hmm. and you know I, d- I certainly don't feel skilled enough to talk to um to talk to uh, males about like their um anatomy and their reproductive anatomy end of things just because it's not that I'm shy about talking about it it's that I haven't studied it but I just feel so empowered by empowered by the idea of speaking to um females about what they have and how it works yeah yeah I I keep coming back to this this concept of like the structures that our body has and how they function about like the endometriosis it's so unfortunate for some reason I feel like or it seems that in the last, I don't know, maybe six months, um, more people are coming into me to say that 
they A, have, have a diagnosis and B, are having excision surgeries rather than just ablations to care for it, which is definitely the more, um, more um, not approved, but um, appropriate method for removing endometrial, endometrial tissues. Um, but yeah, it takes an average of 10 to 12 years to get a diagnosis for endometriosis and one in 10 women suffer from it. And now maybe I should explain for listeners like who don't actually know endometriosis is the endometrial lining is the inside lining of your uterus or of the uterus and endometriosis is when you have. And so basically what happens every month is that the uterus plumps up and the endometrial lining thickens to potentially house a fertilized egg. But if there's no fertilization that occurs, then it sheds at the end of the month. And that's when we have our bleed, right? So that's the normal plumping, shedding, plumping, shedding. Um, but with endometriosis, it's when the endometrial, when there is or are endometrial-like tissues outside of the uterus. And that can be really anywhere in the body that can be um, on ligaments and on the uterus, or it can be in the digestive tract, or it can be on the bowels, it can be on the bladder, it can be, it can be in your eyes and on the brain, like it's that wild. Um, but what it means, these are not that while they, they act like endometrial tissues. So every month, what happens is, is that there is a um, plumping and shedding and plumping and shedding but there's nowhere for the shedding to go to so what the body recognizes this as something wrong and it sends um, helpers but in this case it's not so helpful um, little messengers and chemical um, chemical signals to cause inflammation and to cause repair of this apparent damage to those areas in the body. So whether that's on the bowels or the ligaments of the uterus or, or in and around the ovaries, wherever it might be for you. And that um, inflammation and kind of reconstruction every month of um, that area or that kind of, the, yeah, the inflammation that happens in that area, the, the damage caused by that means that the body has to um, create these little scars and the pain that people feel from endometriosis you know it can happen obviously during their bleed because it can be particularly heavy and it can be particularly painful but it can happen at any time of the month as in like this is what I really need to send home why it's quite tricky to diagnose as well because basically that scarring affects movement and you're, um, believe it or not, you're not stagnant on the inside. And you know, the peristalsis of your gut isn't the only thing that moves. Like your uterus moves, um, the suspensory ligaments of the uterus, all of those kind of things have to move. Your bowels have to move. So every time there is movement, be that like with bowel movement, um, going to the toilet, having sex, ovulating, like all of these very basic things, what happens is, is that it pulls on those scar tissues, those endometrial scar tissues, and it causes pain. Mm -hmm. So it can be quite difficult to diagnose because it doesn't, I mean, I, it doesn't always show up by MRI, unfortunately, 
and you have to be very specific where you're looking for these things so it often gets missed it often gets dismissed it often you know it's very it's a good choice for some people is to go on the pill for a while I would never dismiss any kind of medical intervention that helps anybody in pain Mm -hmm. um if it helps if it's safe if it's effective for you I am 100% behind you um and for some people it doesn't work some people really need a better quality of life and that might mean excision surgery um that might mean you know depending on their age depending on their um fertility wants and desires later on in life that might mean um a hysterectomy or a partial hysterectomy I think that there needs to just the just the kind of broader care that is necessary for broader awareness and care and support and acknowledgement. You know, I would never I never poo-poo people that come into me and say I'm in pain all the time. It's like mm-hmm. if they're in pain all the time, that is their reality. But you have to ask why and what can help. Yeah. Yeah. And I do agree there is a time and place for everything everything I mean I wouldn't be where I am if I wasn't given medication back in the day you know for different things um I think one of the biggest things probably for this type of of care when we're talking about like the reproductive system is helping people to understand their options because obviously it's very different you being diagnosed with endometriosis when you're in your 40s and possibly about to go through menopause than when you are in your mid to late 20s or even 30s and you still want to have a family um yeah and again I guess that comes back to what we were talking about earlier education but informed consent yeah it is that like this you know would you like to try this this is what it does this is you know the effects of it like I find that like I have a background and my first degree was in pharmacology in biochemistry and pharmacology so that explains a lot yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nerd over here <laughs> um but like I often like see you know see on the labels or on drug labels or whatever and it's like side effects like I find that I don't know about anybody else I find that the most bizarre thing in the world is in like these are the effects that happen aside from the intended effects that we want to happen it's like no they happen as well as the other things that happen. There's nothing an aside about these effects as in like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I could go on for that for ages, but like it's, it's understanding everything as a whole. Mm-hmm. Again, it's just not, it's not taking that, that thing of, um, yeah, I mean, like I was, um, for those, so, uh, most people who know me, like my Achilles heel is migraines. Like when I get stressed, I suffer from migraines. When I, <clears throat> I used to think that it was a hormonal thing. I don't think so now, but like it is, it's always been for most of my life. I've suffered from migraines or headaches and things like that. And I remember one time um, my GP offering me, thinking that it was like um, uh, hormonally related and offering me the pill for it. And, you know, I said, just said no straight away. Thank you. Um, but I also felt like it was such a, it was such a reductionist approach. 
for me, it was such a reductionist approach. And I mean, somebody, somebody else it might work for, but I just felt like it was, oh, there's a pest in, in your field. Um, let's just put this pesticide in and kill the pest without kind of really considering the functions of everything else that that, that does as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I really didn't feel like there was the offer there of that. And if I had said yes, the pencil or the script, the pen would have been out for the script straight away. Like, that's what I mean. As in, like, I think that if the pill or if surgery or if uh, it's whatever it is, whatever medical intervention it is for your body, um, information about everything that happens with that intervention should be shared Mm -hmm. and it not only should it be shared but the person needs to understand what's happening if this like it's informed consent but it's like understanding the understanding what you're consenting to because you can I can just throw information at you this happens in healthcare all the time people get thrown information at them they come out going I've no idea what she just said yeah and go even with the terminology used it's they use the medical terminology they don't take the time to even break that down for people you know that's that's what I find very frustrating for people it's like it's okay for me and you if we go to the doctor we'll generally understand what they're talking about other people won't do that and I find that so frustrating for them on their behalf because I'm like break it down into simple language for them so that they actually get it not because they're stupid but because they didn't study medicine so they're not aware of what these words mean so let's make it easy for people to actually understand what you're talking about yeah yeah absolutely but again and like you know I am 100% behind you in that one and I think that it comes back to exactly what you just said earlier time yes 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 but I mean I think if we didn't learn anything from the last two years of watching all these people debate everything on the news and what they do and don't want people to do concerning vaccines, concerning everything else. The biggest issue, again, came back to just not putting things in simple language for people, let people understand it. And, you know, I I just don't understand why that's not something that's taught. It should be part of a curriculum for somebody who's working in healthcare is mm. to actually learn how to speak to their patients and help them to understand what it is they're taking, what mm. action they're doing, uh, what it is they're actually dealing with in the first place. I mean, I think I told you that when I was first diagnosed with the with the reactive arthritis back when I was 19, um, I was told that if I wanted any more information to go home and Google it this this rare condition that nobody really knew anything about go home and google it yeah. so like we need to we need to create better education for people but i i feel like it's going to be a push from people like you and from people like me um who are invested in wanting to make sure that women young women young girls get this education at a much earlier age and get to grow up understanding their bodies i mean even just a post you put up the other day about calling your vagina and parts of your vagina the right names Mm -hmm. you know vulva I was not aware that 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 we should be calling it different I mean I was by the time you posted the other day but I mean going back a year I wasn't yep oh yeah I would have called my vagina my vulva or my vulva my vagina all the time Mm -hmm. um just thinking 
and I and I think that 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 is that is key as in like the language the familiarity with the language as in like we just don't name things there's like it by and when we are able to name things um again this comes back to education um we have that vocabulary and I'm not saying that everybody needs to know where the frenulum of their labia minora is or you know how how that's shaped or anything like that but even just to um again be able to say when if if it so happens that when you go into the doctor and that you're having pain in your vulvar tissues that you are saying I have pain in my vulva tissues mm-hmm. it's sore when I use toilet paper to wipe myself it is painful when I touch myself it is unbearable when somebody else touches me mm-hmm. and to have those conversations we have to have a level of confidence and a level of acknowledgement for those body parts mm-hmm. um, and we're not taught them which is the whole yeah the whole point of like what I would love to share anyways on social media I'm like my clinic work aside I think that that gets blended into it any regardless but like mm. my yeah my my mission really going forward is for as in the kind of public space would be to share about better education on um the female reproductive anatomy mm-hmm. being able to name things being able to identify what's what on our yeah our our bodies and knowing what they do like this is a thing as well isn't like you know for example like the labia minora um these are our inner lips so if um looking at the if you're to imagine a vulva I actually have one here I'll show you but obviously your listeners can't see so Imagining the vulva, you have the outer lips here of the labia majora and the um, mons pubis. So the bony or the fatty mound that just sits on top of your pubic bone would sit up there. But the labia minora inside the labia majora or the outer fatty lips of, of your vulva. These come from the same tissues as the head of the penis. So embryologically speaking, when females develop they develop labia minora and males develop the head of their penis and yet like this just isn't acknowledged or even um even taught about in in schools like how are we supposed to know about how are we supposed to have good sex education if we're not sharing about anatomically what these different body parts mean to each of the sexes like, I mean, I, I remember uh, reading years ago um, the, the book um, called um, Becoming Clitorate. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, I haven't. It's, it's, it's quite a good read. Um, it's by Dr. Um, Dr. Lori Mintz. I think her I think I pronounced her second name Dr. Laurie Mintz she's a psychologist but she very much advocates for um uh clitoracy obviously Mm -hmm. knowing about the clitoris and all of the all of the anatomy that that entails but it's equality Uh, she talks a lot about um just equality within um the 
the bedroom or the in this in the mm-hmm. sex life and like you know while again I'm not kind of I'm not like saying that I'm in any way a sexual uh, educator in that regard like I know anatomy I know um, functional aspects of those kind of things I w- wouldn't have a background in any of those kind of like sex education uh, things in terms of like yeah <laughs> in, uh, in how to of, do it well yeah how, how to do it well <laughs> but obviously there are <laughs> I mean I enjoy how to do it well like, <laughs> I could probably demonstrate for you but I don't think it would be PG for skills <laughs> obviously there are women who are better equipped at that (laughs) what she does like advocate for is equality in this kind of um area and I think that those kind of things are just mind-blowing like I didn't know that yeah I didn't learn that from you before I'm like what did you not teach me come on (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean like I think understanding those kind of that that anatomy at that level so that we can be equal so that mm. we can be equal in the in the pleasure gap that's what Laurie mm. really teaches about or um, she really um talks about is the is the pleasure gap where we need to stop just seeing the vagina as all-inclusive of our reproductive anatomy mm they're like the rest of our anatomy is sacred and amazing Mm -hmm. you know just so so vast and so interesting and I think that that's the thing it's when we when we kind of drop that shameful yeah when we drop that shameful notion about talking about our labia or talking Mm -hmm. about um or you know even asking for what we want sexually Mm-hmm. in that regard this is kind of like getting a little bit off topic but it's a, it's, it's it's saying the same thing it's like communicating about our bodies you know we start to narrow that gap we start to remove that sense of of shame around our bodies and I think that's ultimately better education I think there's a huge thing to be said though about that I mean like I know and we were joking about this before you come on, but um, I was, you know, going to call this episode, um, do you know the size of your clitoris? Because Jen didn't. <laughs> Jen did not know the size of her clitoris, despite studying anatomy and physiology for the guts of four years, did not know. And, um, you know, that was at 33 years old. So um, that's a level of shame for me because because I feel like, sexually I have deprived myself for years not knowing the the ways in which my body can work and the ways in which it can be pleasured and discovering that Mm -hmm. for myself never mind with anybody else yeah but it's it's a whole it is like a self sexual education as well as discovering that this is all the different parts of your body and the shape of your body and Mm -hmm. and all the different things that it's there for and what it can do and all of the different functions that things have you're not taught this Mm -hmm. you know you really are not taught this I mean like if anybody was to google like the HSE sexual education handouts they have they're all available online the clitoris is presented as this little p-shape at the top in this direction it is not you are not you never get the sagittal view of the clitoris like this little p-shape that you see obviously here sits Mm. this 
you know, sits right along your pubic bone. It sits like it, it fans out along the inside of our pubic, um, uh, pubic symphysis. Mm-hmm. I, it, we don't get shown those illustrations aren't shown. Jen, in fact, I would guarantee you that most OBGYN, so obstetrics and gynecological and mm-hmm. anatomical textbooks, like they don't show even like the nerves of the clitoris. Um, they won't show, or a lot of them, I would, a lot of them, um, it would seem, don't actually have the nerve, the dorsal nerves of the clitoris going into the glands of the clitoris, which is the very tip of the clitoris, which is what we mostly see. So like even, even people who are, who are experts in the field, they have to go searching for these things as well. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 I don't know. I can't, I can't quite say what it is. Like a lot of female anatomy is so, has been deleted. <laughs> in so many ways from history and has been I remember teaching um a course once before and I think I had it on one of the slides that it was in 1998 Dr Helen O'Connell um um a urologist from Australia was like the first one to quote unquote discover the clitoris like she didn't um the clitoris was like known back in the age in like the 16th century like mm-hmm. people had already identified this, but it was like it somehow it disappeared throughout the ages. And like, and you know, I have amazing men in my life, so I will not group everybody into this, but the patriarchy deletes these <laughs> things. Yeah. You know, like from one guy, you will say, like, um, I think it was Columbo and Anonymous. And this is the thing as well, like Anonymous back in the day, male, white of a certain class you know Mm -hmm. we haven't progressed all that much but like we have progressed somewhat but there is there's still like this um yeah a battle that needs to be to be fought in order to have full and appropriate and whole female anatomy in medical textbooks (laughs) And in sex education, you know, like I like I I remember looking up the um that those like little sex ed um pamphlets and stuff like that, and just like seeing one of these diagrams and just um like a sagittal diagram. So when I say sagittal, I mean somebody standing up straight and doing a cross section like through the very center mm-hmm. of their body and what you would see there so they have the bladder and they have the vagina and they have you know the, at the very end of the vagina they have the vulva and they have the uterus coming up above that and the rectum behind it um well like it's like they've just totally left out the clitoris and where that sits and um above the vulva and like I'm sorry. I just think that if you're going to, if we're, you can't talk about sex education, you can't talk about female reproductive or female anatomy without including the main pleasure organ. Mm. Do you think it stems from that kind of historical aspect of it being like reproduction folks focused? Like, you know, it's not about female pleasure, it's about reproducing. So it's about um you know making a baby out of this so at the end of the day we don't need to discuss that that's not going to be talked about I mean I'm talking about this on a very like 
three-dimensional like this is the life we're living in right now kind of level I mean I also feel like there's you know with the work that I do on a spiritual level this is a huge issue because we've been so disconnected for so long and it's such a source of power for women Mm -hmm. so I feel like that's a huge thing that's played into it over the years especially as you mentioned in this patriarchal society that we've been living in Mm. um but on a very functional level do we think that that's probably just been blanketed out as well because it's like well you know men and women they reproduce this is what sex is about let's just make it very simple wham bam thank you ma'am and you're done no need for pleasure why would you why would you have pleasure yeah I mean, uh, as far as I understand, it's pretty pleasurable when men ejaculate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, someone's getting pleasure. It just wasn't the women for yeah, a very long it's time. Just, it's just only one part of it that's not getting pleasure. Um, do I think that? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that element of it. Technically, you don't necessarily like you don't necessarily need pleasure to reproduce. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're a hell of a lot, lot more likely to reproduce if it's pleasurable. <laughs> you're a hell of a lot more likely to want to go down that route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look, I think that again, um, coming back to the historical anatomists, some of them were very like. Female pleasure is a is a tricky one. Some some I think nowadays most men would want to encourage that equality. Um, and you can't have quality without having equality. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, it wasn't really considered a um, a thing to note. There wasn't any emphasis put on female pleasure and so there wasn't a whole lot of study done further into the female pleasure organ that's the clitoris I think it was really like in the early 1900s there was like quite a few recorded cases of clitoridectomy wow where they would solve Mm. women's hysterical ways in the world by cutting it and I know that these barbaric practices are still practiced in some way shape or form for sometimes religious Mm. sometimes cultural and very unfortunately sometimes cosmetic reasons Mm -hmm. and again that comes back to education knowing that like the the latter I should say comes back to education knowing that your vulva and your clitoris are perfectly fine and don't need to be downsized for some sort of visual aesthetics Mm -hmm. because they can because it's so sensitive around there I know I'm I know it's not super duper common in Ireland I would say (laughs) I don't think plastic surgery is quite as common in Ireland as it is across the pond Mm -hmm. but people women um well people with vulvas are getting vulvadectomy vulvadectomies (laughs) designer vaginas that was designer yeah designer vulvas all the time 
Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to go back to that tissue <laughs> is the same as the head of the penis. <laughs> yes. Like the hood of the clitoris is equivalent to the foreskin. And people get these paired back all the time for cosmetic reasons. And because we are sold this concept of what is an appropriate size, an appropriate shape, and also the lie that it will make things more pleasurable. Or cleanliness, right? Like mm -hmm. hygiene. Yeah. But our bodies know how to clean themselves. Oh, darling, your vagina, vulva, your, um, <laughs> your cervix, they're all self-cleaning machines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes they don't get it quite right which is just when we need to jump in and help them a little bit but yeah it's not their fault that's usually something that we've done in our lifestyle to affect the cleaning process yeah, exactly um but I mean on that note let's just do a little recap on what people should and should not do down there because people still do this and it drives <clears throat> me baffles me baffles me what are we not doing perfumed anything perfumed oh yeah do sweet it. Jesus <laughs> keep soap away from it it doesn't oh, need it oh babe like I mean I know um a teacher of mine Samantha Zipporah was recently um did a live on Instagram I can't find it for the life of me but she spoke about inserting things into our vagina and like you know basically questioning is this is should this be a normal thing mm -hmm. And again, I'm totally um, neutral when it comes to uh, women doing what is best for them. Caveat, informed education about what is going on when you mm -hmm. insert a tampon or have a moon cup sitting at the bottom of your vagina. Yeah. You know, tampons, um have a time and a place mm -hmm. if that's what you choose please make them organic cotton <laughs> like I'm gonna say that like, like Tampax all of those like standard brands those perfumed brands even if they're not perfumed full of rayon bleach mm -hmm. and although like you know it's gone through such a process that it shouldn't um, be in any way toxic for the body like I was just reading a paper there this is what I do in my spare time Jen just read more <laughs> it's okay. um, scientific I papers as well <laughs> I was reading a scientific paper um, that they took a standard tampon and they put it into a petri dish um, with vagina like cells so obviously it's not somebody's vagina but the uh, kind of the equivalent of what vagina cells are which are super duper absorbent super duper absorbent and they found that they when after doing like all of their tests and their studies they found that there was 17 billion pieces of nanoparticles or plastics was absorbed by that petri dish from one tampon Jesus. Oh, now obviously no. I don't actually know the not obviously, but I don't actually know the name 
of the tampons that were used mm-hmm. like that's pretty standard that's your standard tampons that you would buy generally in supermarkets or pharmacies across yeah. and, and like, as you mentioned like they're like you know I've been stuck sometimes I've been out this is the only thing available you're gonna buy it yeah um historically I I, ha- I have a retroverted uterus as well so tampons have not been comfortable for me to use so it's not something I would have done for a long time and then having constant urinary tract infections over the yeah, years and again they well. don't help with those kind no. of things they change your ph balance they like i would say that they alter how your vagina is going to react to anything outside of it as mm-hmm. in like how your pelvic floor is going to react how your cervix is going to react like you know the the inner two-thirds of the vagina are what we call pressure sensitive Okay, Mm -hmm. so they don't have very many touch sensitive receptors, but they have pressure sensitive receptors in there. So they um, and then the bottom one third of the vagina is touch sensitive. That's why it's, you know, it's generally more pleasurable and er, people with vaginas will feel more at the opening of the vagina rather than really, really further back back in. But Mm -hmm. they will feel pressure back there. But like it is still a sensitive organ. And mm-hmm. you are still going to be able to, or the, the, I guess not the, not that you should, but it's like, we really do need to start to question like why it's a, why it's just a normal thing to put tampons, like shove them up there, ladies, <laughs> get them up, you know, get them up there, ladies, without <laughs> questioning whether that's okay whether that's okay for our bodies and whether it really sits okay. Like, is that like, is that if it's comfortable for you, that's one thing. Um, But like, are you aware of what's inside of you? Are you aware of like the fact that you do have an inanimate object inside of you and what it's doing and when that's okay to have it in there for you and when it becomes uncomfortable and why do you continue with the discomfort? Mm -hmm like discomfort is something we should question without fail like if there's something that's not making especially if you're putting something inside you in a very sensitive part of the body you want to make sure that like it's comfortable for you I'm like I started using um well the equivalent it's organic cup but I started using one of them last year and I have to say I love it because it has changed my relationship with my periods and also Mm. I feel like now I'm able to you know, really take into stock the ecological impact of sanitary products. Um, So because the the cups are flexible, I don't have the same issues as I would with a tampon. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncomfortable for having that retroverted uterus. Um, And also because of the flexibility, I don't feel the same issues with the pressure either. Um, But that being said, there is still times where I will notice, like, I definitely don't want to have that in at night time. It's not happening you know like I want to also in my head I'm like you know the blood can flow backwards out of the cup as well um right I know that that's like it's all these different things go on and I'm like okay I just don't want it in there as much as humanly possible (laughs) yeah I mean like that's the whole idea of our of a period is that the blood is being expelled Mm -hmm. and that ideally everything should move out yeah. And it shouldn't necessarily collect or it shouldn't necessarily um, just sit inside the vagina. Ideally, and this is not for everybody, I will caveat this with that. 
ideally it should flow out. And I know some people, I remember having a conversation with one client before and she's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to stop you there. That's gross. I don't want to wear pads. I just think they're, they're disgusting. And that's fair. That's, that's her, her call. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do sincerely like beg all women <laughs> to, or uterus owners, excuse me, to use organic cotton when available um to you it's just so important and we have biodegradable options now as well for if people can they might be slightly they're not too much more expensive to be honest with you than normal products but um we we do need to consider the impact on the environment i remember looking at stats when i was managing the health store and buying in different products and um it just is scary it's scary it takes nearly our full lifetime for one pad to break down. One. And we use how many? So oh. it is scary. So we need to look at other options. So like you were saying earlier, the period pants. They're great. I mean, I like I was saying, I just feel like every time I put them on, it feels like a hug for my vulva. At the time of the month where I really just want a hug. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that sounds appealing, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, you know, the, I mean, this might suit pe- for some people. I mean, I really like to see the color and the texture of the blood when it comes mm-hmm. out. So I would say that's one thing for me that I don't enjoy about these period pants is that the, the, the inner lining of them is actually black. So some people will be like, thank God I don't see any of that. I just like get on with my day and, you know, my, my underwear do all the jobs for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, I'm like, I'm curious, what does it look like today? Like, I'm you know, the exact same. <laughs> I'm the exact same. And I think like another, another thing as well that, that women don't realize a lot of the time they think there's something wrong with, um, with their vagina, um, like internally. Um, throughout the month when they have different discharge depending on where they are in their cycle and yeah, they don't right. understand it we're, again that's something that we're not taught we are not taught about it and know? again that I don't really feel like that's anything to do with sex education I feel like that's body no. literacy yeah I think there needs to be two different I think there needs to be two different levels of education on this I think there's the sex education part of it but there's also just understanding your anatomy and your body and how it works as a female but also I mean males need this education as well it's just we're specifically speaking about the female reproductive system today um but I think it's really important across the board um to understand this and you know be able to take your power back so that you're constantly not you're not constantly sitting there thinking there's something wrong with you you know you're able to just flow through the month yeah each and every time or I mean, however I long your cycle is it's really uh like being a teenager is bloody tough right no pun intended but like then throwing in um throwing in a period on top of that like often uh, they're so irregular for teens mm-hmm. um your body's changing hormones are raging like it's really hard to be okay with every all the changes that are happening if the 
the allies and the support system and the education system around you is telling you to hide it and not talk about it mm-hmm. and not have those conversations that might actually help yeah. and, and the problem is is that if we as adults are not educated about it there's not even the fact that you know the opportunity to go and talk to parents about it and things like that because the education might not be there across the board and that's nobody's fault that's just how we've we've come through and in, in this society unfortunately um so it needs to be bottoms up and top down approach I think in terms of education but yeah hopefully we will get there over the coming years um I've been asking everyone who comes on because I realize we're already talking for like over an hour <laughs> and I'm like I could talk about this stuff all day with you um but I've been asking the women who come on this season um what does feminine flow mean to you gee whiz it's something about being gentle in my power mm-hmm. yeah like feeling very powerful but being really soft around the edges as well mm, I love um, yeah I mean I think again if I I mean this is not exclusive but like if I think about how often I am in the world like I am very much in my masculine if you say like I own my own business I am very sagittal in my thinking and my ways of doing like I'm constantly trying to figure out puzzles and like you know um very goal orientated and then yeah there when I think when I'm in my feminine or what feminine flow means to me is when I feel like this very sense very strong sense of like coming down into my power Mm. but at the same time it not being um not being like sharp edged Mm. it's just like all these round curvaceous edges and flows to it Mm. I love that (laughs) I think you described yourself perfectly in the first part as well like (laughs) you know you have this beautiful femininity to you even when you like when you laugh it's so feminine um but you're so like you've got that amazing like scientific brain so it is it just like it does really work together so well um where can people find you and like tell people what you because we we kind of launched into loads of different stuff and I was like oh she did this for me she like fixed not no because I wasn't broken but she really helped me with everything and it's funny actually that we're having this conversation today because like I did hurt my back on Saturday <laughs> I was like well this is timely I think the universe is like you need to go and have another appointment um but tell people what you do and where they can find you and get in touch with you and how you can help yeah so um my clinic is on Pembroke Street Lower so pretty central Dublin and um yeah you can find me by typing my name into the internet it generally comes up pretty <laughs> I think there's very few Yael Margulies in Ireland so um yeah you can you can find me there um my my clinic practice is really um really kind of the soul or the backbone if you will of um, my work Mm -hmm. so I love working one-to-one with people and really helping them become more comfortable in their bodies 
Um, and then I guess uh, from an educational standpoint, um, it's it's an additive of that. It's uh, I'm I'm really hoping to become to do more kind of educational courses um, on reproductive anatomy and around all the topics that you and I just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but for the moment, yeah, it's it's a lot of clinic work and. Obviously, I'm on the Insta crack machine. <laughs> she finally surrendered yeah, <laughs> very <know>. recently. <laughs> Your content is top notch, so go you. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, so I'm I'm hoping to share a little bit of little bit of um, vulva wisdom on that and help people become a little bit more cliterate. <laughs> yes, I love that word. Such a great word. Such a great word. Um, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. Thank, Thank you for, being you for here. having me. <laughs> um, guys, would love your feedback on this episode. What did you learn from it? What was your biggest take home? Get in touch with this boat and let us know. Um, I'm going to link all of Yal's details down in the show notes. So definitely go and check her out and um, you'll be able to find the link to her website if you want to book in a session with her, which I could not highly recommend more because... As I mentioned, my life has completely changed since I met you in terms of my relationship with my body and my health and my spinal health. Um, so whilst it might be sore at the moment, that was self-inflicted. So <laughs> it's uh, it's not like it used to be. Um, and I'm just so grateful for that. So grateful for you. So thank you for sharing your magic and your wisdom. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Okay, guys, we'll be back with another episode next week. And thank you so much for listening. We'll chat to you then. I am so grateful to you for sharing your time with me and listening to this episode of Rise Up with Jen Kavanagh. This podcast is just next level. It's an incredible opportunity for me to be able to connect with you and offer you a little something back. So if you enjoyed it and you loved it, please give a review, share it with your friends, your family members, your mom, whoever you think might listen to it and get something from it. It is for everyone. I thank you so much for your time and I will speak to you in the next podcast soon.